Welcome to Integrative Medicine Solutions with Forum Health, the podcast. Our nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers believe in a new standard of healthcare, one that creates optimal health by focusing on partnering with you, understanding your needs, learning about your unique health history, and getting to the root cause of your concerns. Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional healthcare for all. Your journey to better health starts here. Okay, so this week for class two, we're talking about insulin, which is the fat storage hormone. Um, to talk about insulin, we have to talk a little bit about the endocrine system because insulin is a hormone and all of the hormones function together in a symphony um, with each hormone impacting what the other hormones are doing. We talked about um, carbohydrates, how to determine what was a good carbohydrate, what was a sometimes okay carbohydrate, and what was a so-called bad carbohydrate. And that spectrum was based on how much sugar is released into the bloodstream by consuming that carbohydrate. So for example, good carbohydrates were the non-starchy vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, zucchini, um, the fruits, non-starchy fruits, um, apples, pears, bananas, cantaloupe, everything except bananas. Uh, remember bananas were crunchy and full of seeds before we hybridized them. So now they're just full of sugar. Um, in the sometimes category, we put wild brown basmati rice, steel-cut oats, quinoa, sweet potatoes, winter squashes, pineapple, things that are higher in sugar but still have some fiber to slow down the impact on your blood sugar when you eat those foods. And the um, when you keep the blood sugar spike minimized, you keep the insulin spike minimized. And if you can keep the insulin spike minimized, then you can minimize fat storage potential with that meal. Um, so on the bad side of the carbohydrate scale, we had processed grains like pasta, um, cereals, breads, quick oats, um, white potato, high fructose corn syrup, anything that's made with sugar, juices, which are um, fruits without the fiber, baked goods, candy, soda, those kinds of things. So this week we're gonna talk more about insulin. Insulin is made by your pancreas. Um, the beta cells in the pancreas make insulin and its job is to push sugar into the muscle cell so that the sugar can be burned for energy or to take that sugar into a fat cell as a triglyceride so that it can be stored for later use um, when it's needed. The pancreas also makes a hormone called somatostatin. Somatostatin um, reduces acid production in the stomach and it decreases the rate of gastric emptying, which is gonna become important when we talk about insulin resistance and how the hormones get disrupted. So insulin takes sugar into the muscle cells where it's burned as sugar or it's stored as glycogen or it can take glucose into a fat cell and store it as triglycerides. Insulin also moves amino acids into the cells for protein synthesis. So amino acids are the building blocks of each protein. 
And when we eat steak protein, chicken protein, et cetera, it has to be broken down into amino acids and then reassembled in human form. And insulin has the job of pushing those amino acids into the cells. Muscles have to have glucose during active exercise. Um, if they don't have glucose, they can burn glycogen, which is a stored form of sugar uh, for activity. When glucose and glycogen are um, eliminated or used up, then the liver starts to um, turn fatty acids back into glucose so they can be burned by the body. So the purpose of fat storage is to make sure that whether we have feast or famine, there's plenty of food or there's not plenty of food around, that we will always have enough energy to burn for physical activity. Um, this is how the body survives. And in the past, when food was scarce, it was very important from an evolutionary standpoint for us to be able to store fat um, to burn as energy until the next animal was killed or until there was food, um, there was adequate food around. So the purpose of fat storage is to have a ready supply of energy on hand, whether there's food available or there's not food available. The problem is that now uh, there are no famines. We have plenty of food around all the time and we never go through a famine in which to burn through those fat stores. Right. We have, we have easy access to food. <clears throat> Your liver can also store sugar as glycogen and it can store sugar as fat. The rates of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in the United States had gone up and that's because our diet is dysregulated um, as far as the body, the way the body works. Our, our diet does not fit the way the body works. So we talked about somatostatin. When insulin levels go up, that makes somatostatin levels go up. Why do you think a rise in insulin would tell your body to do this here? To lower stomach acid and to slow down the GI tract. Why are those two things related? So my insulin goes up because I ate, right? Yeah. If I just ate, I don't need to do it again right away, right? So this is one of the ways that we regulate our own appetite. Um, the problem usually becomes when these insulin levels get crazy high. So we're going to talk about how that happens. But this is important. This should happen. This should happen. What's bad is if you're eating so much sugar that your insulin levels are rising really high and they're not coming back down. So if my insulin level stays high in between meals, and this continues to be a problem. When I'm ready for the next meal, I don't have the acid around to deal with the next meal. Mm -hmm. And I can't get my stomach to empty anything on time. So diabetics develop something called gastroparesis. Gastroparesis is just a loss of gastric emptying. Well, of course they do because their insulin is high all the time. So that makes sense. Your um, small intestine also makes a hormone that um, stimulates the gallbladder. So somebody tell me what the gallbladder does. Great. Produces bile so that you can emulsify your fats and bring them into the bloodstream because oil and water don't mix, right? So it's like your soap. Uh, that's called cholecystokinin. It stimulates your gallbladder. Um, cholecystokinin levels will also be suppressed by high levels of insulin. Because again, high levels of insulin tell your body that we don't need to eat again for a while. So if my insulin levels are high all the time, 
what might happen to my gallbladder? If I don't tell my gallbladder to empty regularly, what oh, happens to it? Yeah, sludge, gallstones, infection, inflammation, and then I lose it. So um, I don't know if you remember this or if you've ever heard this, but when I was in nursing school years ago, they said that people who developed gallbladder disease are fat, fair, female, and 40. Anybody ever heard that? <laughs> well, the, the fat part is because the, typically their insulin levels are too high. And white females have higher um, insulin levels generally, uh, and they also have lower cholecystokinin levels. So this is true. Every woman in my family lost their gallbladder in their in their 40s, except for me. <laughs> Hell no to mine. Um, because your metabolism slows down as you get to 35, 40, right? And as your metabolism slows down, your insulin levels go up. So it's not just regulating blood sugar. It's not just storing fat. It's also how my entire GI tract is functioning. Symphony, right? Very complex symphony. Now let's talk about the stomach again. So ghrelin. Um, I call ghrelin the gremlin because ghrelin um, increases your appetite. And if things get dysregulated, it can really overstimulate your appetite. But ghrelin is made in the stomach when the stomach gets empty. The stomach's been empty for a while, then your pumps uh, produce ghrelin. Ghrelin gets into the bloodstream and goes to the brain and it sits on the hypothalamus and it tells the hypothalamus that you need to eat. Ghrelin also increases your energy, it increases your memory, it increases your focus. Why? Because if we lived thousands of years ago, if I'm hungry, what do I gotta do? I'm not driving to the drive-thru. I'm going out, right? I'm going out to kill someone. So Greenland was, was evolutionarily important because if you didn't have energy, focus, and memory, you weren't getting an animal that day. Um, so this is why we feel better before lunch than we do after lunch or before Thanksgiving dinner than after Thanksgiving dinner, right? Because this increases the focus and energy of our brains. It's also why people who do intermittent fasting feel so much better because this goes into the brain and it's almost like a drug. Um, it does stimulate your dopamine receptors. The dopamine receptors are the receptors that are associated with addiction. Um, same thing would be stimulated by a drug or sex or alcohol or gambling, all the things people can be uh, become addicted, addicted to. So you want Greenland levels to fluctuate normally. So a normal fluctuation would be um, it gets really high when you're hungry and you eat and it goes back down to normal. And then it gets high when you're hungry and it goes back down to normal. It should look like this over the course of the day. Um, when it gets when it gets messed up, and we'll talk about how it can get messed up, that's when your appetite starts to become dysregulated. So a normal Greenland level appetite is hunger for real food, right? Hunger for protein and veggies and you know, some cheese, what you know, whatever, whatever, whatever healthy foods you typically eat. A dysregulated ghrelin, which looks more like this, high all the time. This is a craving for high fat, high carbohydrate foods. So pizza, um, hamburgers, chips, Twinkies, cakes, cookies. So it's a completely different experience. And this uh, this hunger signal here has nothing to do with your conscious thought. Remember, all of these hormones are talking to your hypothalamus without consulting you. 
You don't have any control over these. You have some control, but you can't tell these hormones what to do. These hormones are just listening to the hypothalamus. So when you start having these weird cravings for junk food, well, that means your thermostat is dysregulated and we need to get it back in balance. If you're never hungry, that's not normal either. You should, you should get hungry two or three times a day. I would say probably two times a day is average. Most people eat three times a day because that's the American standard, but probably two times a day is about average. Um, if you're hungry all the time, that's a problem. Never hungry, that's a problem. Because this cycle here also helps to regulate your leptin. And leptin is the fat storage hormone. So leptin is the hormone that tells your hypothalamus, we have plenty of fat storage, we've gotten too thin. So leptin is how you survived the famines way back in the day when we had famines. When fat levels fell too low, leptin would go up to the hypothalamus and say, it's too low, we need to find food, go, look for food, eat until you gain some weight. And then once your fat storage went back up to normal, then leptin levels would um, tell your hypothalamus, okay, we have enough fat storage, you can be less hungry. Still eat, but not quite as ravenously, right? So that's leptin's job is to regulate your fat storage. In a perfect world, everybody would have just enough fat storage to survive. The problem is that as the years have gone by, we've been exposed to more and more hormone dysregulating influences. What things do you know of that, deregulate hormones, things that we're exposed to or things that we do. Toxins. Yes, toxins for sure. Poofas. Yes, poofas, agreed. Polyunsaturated fatty acids. <laughs> you don't remember what that was? <laughs> what else? She said lack of sleep can disrupt your hormones. Um, and particularly not only not sleeping, but being exposed to blue light after the sun went down. So when the sun goes down, that's the signal to your pineal gland, which is another endocrine organ to make your melatonin. But if the sun went down and you're still looking at your phone or looking at your computer screen or watching TV, the pineal gland doesn't get any message that you need to make melatonin, which means your sleep becomes dysregulated and cortisol is produced all day long instead of melatonin. Um, so just being expo exposed to blue light after dark, which we all do since the invention of electricity, right? <laughs> what else? What else makes cortisol elevated? Oh, stress. Stress. Do we have any stress? I mean, are we on the verge of economic collapse or anything like that? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things that deregulate ghrelin and leptin. Um, the kinds of foods that we eat also influence ghrelin and leptin levels. So if you eat high fat, high carbohydrate foods um, on a regular basis, what happens to this ghrelin level is, um, so it got... It got really high because you were hungry and you ate pizza and garbage. So when it came down, it didn't go all the way back down to normal. And it went back up again. And the next time you ate, you ate pizza and garbage. So it still didn't come back quite, quite down where it belonged. And the next time it went up way this, this high. And then it, you see how the baseline keeps moving further and further up. So this is how you end up with Greenland high all the time. 
So now because of the way that you ate, you have stimulated abnormal appetite to continue to eat that way. So now your hypothalamus is telling you to keep doing that. It's working. Go ahead. Keep doing that. <laughs> so the way that we eat, the foods that we eat also influence our hormone balance. So ghrelin is the hunger hormone and leptin is the fat storage regulating hormone. Insulin is the fat storing hormone. So you remember me saying that last week because it can store sugar as fat. Leptin is what regulates your fat storage or it's supposed to regulate your fat storage anyway. All right. Other things that can cause your ghrelin level to go up. So remember, we want ghrelin to be very low, very high, very low, very high, like that all day. We don't want it to be high all the time. Other things that can cause your ghrelin level to be elevated all the time is um, sleep deprivation. So not only will sleep deprivation cause your cortisol level to go up and your melatonin level to go down, but it will also, it will also cause a rise in that baseline ghrelin. You know this. You know that if you miss a couple of nights of sleep, you start craving junk food, right? Mm -hmm. I used to work night shift. That's actually when I gained all the weight that I had to lose was on night shift. Mm -hmm. That's the crap that you crave because that's what your hypothalamus is telling you to do. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means your hypothalamus is deregulated, right? Comfort food. Right. But it's comfort food because your hypothalamus said so. Um, because that those are the cravings that you get with elevated ghrelin. Um, and as I mentioned, the Greenland cravings are high calorie, high fat foods. So it becomes difficult to eat in a healthy way. And also, if you think about um, children and adolescents who haven't fought this struggle several times or who just follow their instincts without really thinking about how healthy a food is, you can see how the diet of children and adolescents can become very problematic because they have the same toxin exposures and sleep deprivation that we have, um, but they're not cognizant of their own physical health because they're invincible, right? I mean, you're invincible until you're like 25 or so. You think you are, <laughs> you think you're invincible. You're not invincible, but you think you are. Um, and then when you eat those high carbohydrate foods, those high fat, high calorie foods, that's when your uh, ghrelin level starts to climb higher and higher and higher. So it's a self-perpetuating problem. The good news is we can fix it. So I want to talk about insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is the same thing as saying your insulin is too high. So earlier we talked about when your insulin is too high, then your gallbladder doesn't work normally, your GI tract doesn't empty normally, right? You're getting all these signals um, that are abnormal. Your fat storage starts to go up. So the way that insulin resistance develops is you have this muscle cell. Muscle cell has a receptor for insulin. Insulin comes up to the receptor and says, hey, I have some, some sugar, would you like it? And the muscle cell says, no, I don't have anywhere to put it because you haven't done anything in a week. Um, and so insulin says, well, can you take it as glycogen? And the muscle cell says, no, I'm already full of all the glycogen that I can store. So you're going to have to take it somewhere else. So insulin resistance is when the muscle cells shut down the insulin receptor because they don't have any room to take in the sugar or the glucose. That's literally all that happens. So as the insulin receptors get shut down, your levels of insulin start to rise. So a normal fasting insulin, for example, is um, three to six, somewhere in there. A normal insulin level after you've eaten is somewhere between six and 19. 
I've seen fasting insulin levels as high as 75, 80, 100. Um, when insulin is high in a fasting state, when you haven't had anything to eat, then you are in fat storage mode all the time. You're also in cell growing mode, which means cancer. Um, you're also shutting down your gallbladder and your GI tract along with some other things. So the insulin resistance happened because you didn't have anything anywhere to put the sugar or the glycogen. Well, what's the easiest way to get this receptor working again? Get moving. Get moving. <laughs> exactly. If you contract the muscles, they'll have to burn the sugar that they have, and then they'll have to burn the glycogen. So it takes 15 minutes uh, for a muscle cell to burn sugar. And it takes 20 to 30 minutes to burn glycogen. So if you want to burn fat, you need to move longer than this. And if you're already insulin resistant, you need to move longer than this because we got to move enough that we burn through the sugar, burn through the glycogen and get this insulin receptor working again. So um, let's say 60 minutes and beyond. Just moving is twice as effective as metformin at um, reversing insulin resistance. So metformin is a drug that we use for pre-diabetics, people who are insulin resistant, becoming diabetic or who are diabetic. And the way that um, metformin works is it increases an enzyme in here that causes sugar to burn just a little bit faster. And because it's burning a little bit faster, your insulin receptors open up a little bit. Exercise is twice as effective as that um, with far less side effects. <laughs> Definitely less side effects. So the more sugar you consume, the more insulin you make. And the less you move and the more sugar you consume, the more insulin resistant you become. Once insulin resistance starts to kick in, then what happens to the body? So insulin resistance is 10 to 15 years before diabetes. Most people begin the insulin resistance at this point, most people begin insulin resistance in adolescence. It used to be that we didn't become insulin resistant until we were 50 or 60. And so diabetes came in our 70s. It's been gradually moving back every generation. Now we have um, 60, I think it was 68% of the American population is um, diabetic or pre-diabetic at this point. That doesn't count insulin resistance. Um, but insulin resistance starts really early in life. Um, I uh, take care of children and I see pretty severe insulin resistance. We had, I guess it was about seven years ago, we had our first three-year-old type two diabetic in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, that means she was insulin resistant in utero mm -hmm. at the time of conception. Um, was, right. was the mother diabetic? Yes, she was. So was the father. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the mother was very unhealthy, um, not, not just diabetic, but very unhealthy. But you also have to think about all the toxins that we're exposed to. We all, we find them all in umbilical cord blood. Mm -hmm. Um, so for those of you that were born years and years ago, you're, you were not exposed to any chemicals during during conception and um, during fetal development. But now they're exposed to hundreds of thousands of chemicals through umbilical cord blood and through breast milk. So the chance to be healthy, you really have to fight to be healthy now. 
Um, you didn't use to have to fight to be healthy, but now you do. So once you've developed insulin resistance, what starts to happen then? So you would expect there to be some weight gain, right? You can also see acne. You can also see hormonal disruption, particularly PCOS in women and low testosterone in men. Remember, all of these hormones are tightly connected. You also see your cortisol levels go up. So if my insulin level is up and my cortisol level is up, then my fat storage is definitely going to be a problem. Now, can you be insulin resistant and not be overweight? Yeah. Yeah, you can. So not all of us were born with unlimited fat storage potential. That's actually genetic. You're either born with that gene or you're not. So there are a lot of people who were born incapable of unlimited amounts of fat storage. They are the sickest diabetics on the planet because they don't have anywhere to put the sugar, nowhere. So they get very sick, but you can absolutely be insulin resistant and be a perfectly normal weight. You can even be underweight. But for those of us born with a gene for fat storage, fat storage typically goes up. Um, PCOS, anybody know what PCOS is? Cystic ovarian syndrome. Yeah. So PCOS causes infertility, irregular periods, Um, it also causes some skin rashes, but we don't want to talk about that. But de it definitely causes infertility and irregular periods. Your col your cholesterol goes up. And your triglycerides go up. So triglycerides are literally the fat storage form of sugar. So the sugar that you store in your fat cells, that's what they are, triglycerides. So when you look at your cholesterol panel in a fasting state, your triglycerides should be less than 70. Anything over 70 says that your blood sugar is dysregulated and you have some insulin resistance. So you want to see triglycerides less than 70. Cholesterol goes up because cholesterol is 50% of every cell in your body. So anytime you have inflammation of any kind, whether that's an injury, an infection, insulin resistance, a toxic exposure, Cholesterol goes up as a consequence, so your body can repair. So that's what the liver does for you. When it sees inflammation or damage or infection, it causes cholesterol to rise. So if you want cholesterol to go back down, you just identify the source of the inflammation and get rid of it. Um, so here we're talking about blood sugar um, excess and insulin resistance, but it can be all kinds of things. Metabolic syndrome is high triglycerides, high cholesterol, high insulin, high blood sugar. Right, you've heard of metabolic syndrome. Um, so we have tons and tons and tons of metabolic syndrome in the United States these days. We also talked about cancer. Um, sleep disruption. What about depression? So um, what happens in the brain is highly impacted by what's happening with the hormones. So if the hormones are dysregulated in some way, you can expect there to be brain symptoms of some kind, whether that's anxiety, depression, insomnia, irritability, um, whatever. It, it can be any kind of brain disruption. So it's so much bigger than just how much you weigh, right? 
All right. Something else you get with insulin resistance is endothelial. I can't spell that without looking. Endothelial dysfunction. The endothelial lining is the lining of your blood vessels. So inside of your vessels, you have this lining called the endothelial lining. And on the outside, you have the this muscle that controls the vessel. The endothelial lining is only one cell layer thick. Um, that's microscopic. And if there's damage to this cell layer, then your liver pumps out cholesterol to go fix it, right? And if there keeps being damaged, you just keep putting cholesterol down here until you develop, what is this now? This is a blockage in my artery. That's right. Because this is inflamed and the liver said cholesterol is what fixes inflammation. So I'm just going to come keep putting cholesterol down until you stop the inflammation. Uh, so insulin resistance leads to heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, arterial disease, et cetera, because insulin resistance damages the endothelial lining. Um, it, other things damage it too, like smoking and toxin exposure and um, asbestos exposure, all kinds of things. But insulin resistance does too. And that's why diabetics have such high rates of heart attacks, strokes, and blood clots. Uh, women who are younger who have insulin resistance and take birth control pills also get blood clots um, because of the underlying insulin resistance and the, mm -hmm. hormone, the hormone changes with the estrogen. Not only does do you get clots on the inside, but you also lose the ability to dilate your blood vessels. So let's change this here. Let's say this is where my cholesterol plaque is. What if my vessel constricts So it constricts through the influence of that muscle. So even if that plaque wasn't all the way across yet, if I can't make my blood vessels dilate, then I can have heart attacks and strokes even earlier. But also what happens to my blood pressure when this happens? What happened to that fluid there? Yeah. Um, I now have less pipes for the same amount of water. So the pressure in the pipes just went up. That means my blood pressure goes up. Um, so blood pressure rises um, along with insulin resistance and not the other way around. Not the blood pressure causes insulin resistance, not the blood pressure causes high cholesterol. No, the insulin resistance caused the high blood pressure and the high cholesterol. So if we want to fix it, we target the insulin resistance and all the other things get better. It also, um, whoops increases platelet aggregation. So that means your platelets get sticky. If platelets get sticky, your risk for plaques goes up too, right? There we go, platelets get sticky. Um, insulin resistance is closely tied to erectile dysfunction as well, because erectile function is this right here. It requires a normal blood vessel. Um, so erectile dysfunction is an early sign. When men come in with erectile dysfunction, we typically work them up for cardiovascular disease because the by the time that large vessel in the penis is affected, the small arteries in the heart have been affected for a while. Mm. Um, so those men always get a cardiovascular workup unless there's some history of injury or trauma that could explain it. Mm. Um, otherwise, they're going to get a blood vessel, blood vessel workup.
And then we talked about cancer already and vessel plaques. We also talked last week about insulin resistance causing Alzheimer's disease, right? <laughs> In some studies, it's called type 3 diabetes, Alzheimer's is, which is scary to consider. Can you imagine how early Alzheimer's will be in just two more generations? Mm -hmm. It's terrifying. All right, so now let's talk about these fat cells for just a second. Because fat cells don't just store fat. Do you know that? They don't just store fat. Fat cells are metabolically active. Particularly... Um, belly fat cells. So the visceral fat, metabolically active, meaning they make stuff, they produce stuff. Well, your leptin comes from fat cells, but we talked about that. Leptin is how you regulate your own fat storage. But that's not all that fat cells make. Fat cells also make molecules called cytokines. Anybody ever had the flu? You also make cytokines in response to an infection. And you know what it feels like, headache, joint pain, fatigue, apathy, loss of energy. That's what cytokines feel like. So do you think having excess fat storage is going to make you feel good? No, it's not. So the joint pain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the headaches, the apathy, the loss of energy coming from right here because these fat cells are metabolically active. So cytokines are inflammation. And you make inflammation when you get an infection because it can kill, right? Cytokines can kill the virus. And then about three to four days later, you have an antibody to the virus and your inflammation gets better. And by day seven, you feel fine. Um, but these inflammatory molecules don't ever go down because you're not fighting a virus, right? You're fighting insulin resistant. So insulin resistance. So the higher the fat storage goes, the higher the cytokines go and the worse you feel. So people who say, I'm tired, I'm fatigued, my joints hurt, my muscles hurt, etc., they're not lazy, they're inflamed. This, of course, makes it more difficult to deal with it because that easy exercise trick to fixing insulin resistance becomes a lot harder when you become inflamed. So sometimes we have to deal with these inflammatory molecules so that people have the energy and, and the ability to do some exercise, but they're not lying. They're not lazy. They're not pretending. They are very inflamed. It's like walking around with the flu all the time. Um, some people experience it worse than others. African-Americans and Hispanics make higher levels of inflammatory cytokines than anyone else. That's why these are the people that have um, the worst inflammatory response. They died from COVID more often. They have more obesity. Uh, they have more cardiovascular disease because they make more inflammatory cytokines. But Caucasian people do too. Um, it's just worse for them. So you begin to feel like you have the flu all the time, um, which is not fun. These cytokines also contribute to cancer. Um, so I won't tell you all the names of those cytokines, but there's two that are made by your fat cells that cause cancer cells to grow. So the more fat storage you have, the higher the risk for um, risk for cancer. Now, there are some things that contribute to insulin resistance that are not eating sugar or refusing to move your body. We talked about some of them last week. 
Remember the trans fats? So I told you last week that trans fats cause insulin resistance, but we hadn't talked about insulin resistance yet. So I'm reminding you, trans fats cause insulin resistance. Where do we find the trans fats? In big goods, store-bought. Yeah, we're margarine and store bought store bought baked goods because um to be shelf stable they need it to be a solid uh, fat margarine any kind of pretend solid fat shortening is a trans fat so uh, basically they turn an oil into a plastic mm -hmm. to make it shelf stable so that it will last for a long time that's a trans fat trans fats are so inflammatory. Um, and drive so much insulin resistance that even the FDA finally said, yeah, I guess we shouldn't eat those. But they allow um, companies to put zero trans fats on the label as long as it's 0 0.5 milligrams or less per serving, um, which means you can have hundreds of milligrams of trans fats in one box of cookies um, because I'm only supposed to have two <laughs> cookies. <laughs> um, Omega-3, omega-6 imbalance can also cause insulin resistance. So we haven't talked about um, omega-6s yet, but omega-3s come from your fish, right? Mm -hmm. Omega-6s come from the PUFAs. So canola oil, vegetable oil. You should have um, only three parts omega-6 to one part omega-3 in your diet. The standard American diet is 16 parts omega-6 to one part omega-3 because we eat so much of the poopas, right? Soybean oil, corn oil, vegetable oil. So eating all of these things and not enough of these things causes insulin resistance, which explains why we have a lot of insulin resistance in this country, even in people who don't eat garbage all the time, because this is a ubiquitous part of American culture at this point. Other countries are now banning it. They're banning the use of poopas, but not us. We'll be last. <laughs> Chromium deficiency can also cause insulin resistance. Anybody heard of chromium? If you've ever seen a diabetic supplement, chromium is usually in there. Chromium is a mineral. Um, we get our minerals from the soil that our vegetables are grown in. And some of our minerals we get from meat. Tell me about the dirt in the United States. Is there anything left? No. No. It's been farmed to crap. There's nothing left. So there is a lot of chromium deficiency. There's also a lot of magnesium deficiency, a lot of iodine deficiency, because it's not in our soil anymore. And depending on where you live, there wasn't a lot of iodine or chromium anyway. Depends on what your soil is like in your state or wherever you got your food from. So when chromium gets low, the insulin receptor starts to fall apart. And so it causes insulin resistance. That's easy to fix. We talked about chronic stress. We talked about sleep deprivation. These are just the things that can cause insulin resistance other than diet. And by sleep deprivation, I don't just mean missing sleep. I also mean um, blue light after sunset. So you can fix blue light after sunset really easily without giving up your devices. You can just buy blue light blocker glasses on Amazon, put them on over your glasses, or if you don't wear glasses, put them on, and then um, the, the influence will not happen. 
has to be blue light. So when you put orange glasses on, um, it blocks the blue light. There are some meds, medicines that can cause insulin resistance. Anybody know any of them? Prescription medications that can cause blood sugar issues? I, I remember you talking about this. Is blood pressure, that's not to do with blood pressure. Um, yes, blood pressure is one of them. Steroids is a big one. Everybody knows steroids cause, cause weight gain, right? And sleep disruption. Um, yeah. Steroids definitely cause insulin resistance. Which, yeah. Yes. So this is sort of a complex uh, concept that we haven't gotten to yet, but antibiotics cause insulin resistance because antibiotics destroy your gut bacteria. And your gut bacteria controls how fast sugar comes out of your food into the bloodstream. So they've done all these studies um, out of Kaiser Permanente in California, giving many different people a banana and measuring how their blood sugar rose and then looking at their microbiome to see what the influences were of their, their microbiome to their blood sugar. And there's lots of connections. So when you take antibiotics, you wipe out your good gut bacteria. It only takes two rounds of antibiotics before the age of two to double the risk of obesity. Oh. which is outrageous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but that's because before the age of two, you haven't really finished setting the microbiome. You're still eating off the floor and playing with the dog and sucking your fingers and you're getting all those microbes. You're not quite done. You're really not done with your microbiome until you're almost four. Mm -hmm. So antibiotics before you're finished, quite devastating. Synthetic estrogens. So those birth control pills, or the horse urine estrogen that they used to give um, for postmenopausal um, estrogen uh, replacement, the synthetic estrogens cause insulin resistance. They also change your uh, microbiome. Steroids and estrogens change your microbiome because they feed um, yeast in the gut. Yeast loves sugar. So if you feed yeast in the gut, you'll start to crave sugar and then you'll eat more sugar and your blood sugar and your insulin will rise as a consequence. So it's not just what it's doing to your hormones, it's also what it's doing to your gut, which we'll talk about um, in a few more weeks. She said blood pressure medication. Um, beta blockers are the blood pressure medication that cause insulin resistance. And it's interesting that usually blood pressure is the first thing that people get treated for when they're insulin resistant, right? Because the insulin resistance starts 15 years in advance, and as your insulin goes up, your blood pressure goes up. Well, the blood pressure is being measured, but the insulin isn't, right? We don't measure insulin when you get your physical. We measure your blood pressure, your blood sugar, and your cholesterol. So the blood pressure goes up first. So then you get put on a beta blocker. Sometimes, not always. Beta blockers cause insulin resistance because beta blockers block your sympathetic nervous system, meaning it blocks your ability to burn sugar. Um, so now you're now you're causing more insulin resistance that you already had because your blood pressure went up because you had insulin resistance already. Also diuretics, the other medicine we use for high blood pressure. So anybody ever heard of hydrochlorothiazide or HCTZ? HCTZ is a diuretic. It used to be the most commonly prescribed blood pressure medication. And then 10 years ago, the American College of Cardiology took it off the list of blood pressure medications to use because it causes diabetes. 
So if you take certain diuretics, then your risk of diabetes went up dramatically, causes insulin resistance. So we were giving insulin resistant people drugs that cause insulin resistance. And of course they got worse. They gained more weight. They became diabetic faster. Um, I still see doctors prescribing HCTZ as first line therapy because it usually takes doctors 25 years to catch up with new research, which is just disgusting. Yeah. Um, because they're still doing what they were taught in school. And the new guidelines come out, but they're not reading them necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and so when the new generation of kids come out of school, then practice changes. It takes a very long time. And sometimes patients ask me why their doctor disagrees with me. And the answer is because your doctor is doing what he was taught in school. And I'm not. I'm, I'm keeping up with new research all the time. Um, and that doesn't make me better. It just makes me different. Because um, you definitely want the new research, not the old stuff. All right, what else? And then, of course, um, antipsychotics, things like Abilify, Seroquel, things that we use for severe depression or schizophrenia, those things cause weight gain and insulin resistance, but those aren't very common. All right, so if those are the things that make it worse, what can we do to make it better? There's hope. There's hope. <laughs> There's hope. How did Kimberly's last? She's <laughs> almost out of cars. <laughs> you guys are so funny. All right. So the first thing is dietary fiber slows down how fast sugar hits your bloodstream. We talked about this last week. Right. Remember when we developed the good, okay, and bad carbohydrate list? What was the difference between the good carbs and the bad carbs? Oh, fastly hit your bloodstream. Fiber versus starch, right? Because fiber is really hard to break down. Actually, some fibers can't be broken down by humans at all. But sugars and starches, super easy, break it down in your mouth, right? Before they even get to the GI tract. So the more fiber and the lower the sugar of the starch, the easier it is on your blood sugar. So if all you did was increase dietary fiber in your diet, you could probably see some improvements. If you also added to that movement, then you could see significant improvement. Kimberly, does it have a kind of fiber? What do you mean? Like soluble, insoluble. Um, insoluble fiber is the kind that we can't break down. So insoluble fiber will never be broken down by you. Insoluble fiber goes to your colon and gets broken down by your microbiome. And then your microbiome turns it into short chain fatty acids, which helps your body heal. So insoluble fiber is very good for you, but you don't ever break it down. It just feeds your gut microbiome. If you want to improve your gut microbiome, insoluble fiber is the best place to start. Soluble fiber can be broken down by you, but it doesn't become sugar. It just becomes cellulose. So like broccoli, for example, has some insoluble fiber and some soluble fiber. What you don't want is short chain starches, like pasta and bread and potatoes, things that turn into sugar in your mouth because it's such short fibers. Those are the things that become sugar too fast. So those are the things that you want to avoid. But soluble fiber and insoluble fiber, both um, beneficial. Slow down blood sugar, 
um, entering the bloodstream and feed your gut microbiome. And the healthier your gut microbiome is, the lower your insulin and blood sugar levels are. Remember, those two things are directly connected to one another. So you definitely want to feed it fiber. This is why I don't like the old Atkins diet. How much fiber was on the old Atkins diet? None. None whatsoever. Unless you count the little tiny fiber that's on the end of the green bean, right? The little thing that you pop off the plant, that little part, that was the only fiber that was in there. Um, and then, of course, exercise. What about chromium? So if you know that you can't get, get, get good minerals from your food in the United States, then you should pay attention to that. Um, and I typically put people in the mineral complex to make sure. You would also want to focus on high quality protein. So high, like ruminant, grass-fed ruminants, um, grass-fed cow, grass-fed lamb, grass-fed sheep, grass-fed elk, grass-fed bison. They have the most minerals of all the protein sources. Pasture-raised eggs have a lot of minerals. Um, and then homegrown veggies would have good amount of min minerals, or you could just take a mineral complex to make it a little bit easier to get it. Um, but minerals regulate all kinds of things in your body, not just insulin and fat storage and blood sugar. Um, so you could take chromium by itself, or you could take an ins you could take a mineral complex to make sure that you get them all in there. Is chromium in your multivitamins or anything like that? Or no? um, sometimes you'll have to look at the back of your multivitamin. But it's typically not as much as you need. Okay. Um, I take the mitochondria from here. So that one has chromium. Oh, because that one is designed for blood sugar regulation. Okay. And mitochondrial function. Yeah. So I know how much chromium that one has. Okay. Um, but you just need to check because some have um, lower levels of minerals and some have higher levels of minerals. What is a good amount of chromium? Is it different for everybody? I would say 200 micrograms or better. Yeah, 200 micrograms are better. My little cards got out of line. Here we go. All right, so did we talk about all of these? Oh, no. <clears throat> I forgot to tell you about this because my cards are out of order. So we were talking about the things that happen because of insulin resistance. And I give you this list because remember, there's a lot of people who are insulin resistant who have perfectly normal weight. They don't know they're insulin resistant. Um, gout. Know anybody with gout? No, Caused by insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. um, high insulin causes high uric acid levels and high uric acid levels collect in a joint and they give you gouty episodes, gouty attacks. So that comes from insulin resistance. Know anybody with sleep apnea? Mm -hmm. Sleep apnea is caused <laughs> by insulin resistance. It can also cause insulin resistance because the less you sleep at night, the higher your insulin and cortisol levels go. But it can also happen the other way. Insulin resistance can cause sleep apnea. The reason that is, is because those inflammatory cytokines that you make when you have excess fat storage, they actually cause restriction in your airway. They cause restriction in the mucous membranes of your nose and your um, throat. So you can get obstructive sleep apnea with a perfectly normal septum and not a lot of excess fat storage, just enough to be making too many inflammatory cytokines. Um, and then of course, the minute you have sleep apnea, your weight gain is going to get worse and worse and worse, right? Um, because now you're chronically sleep deprived. What else? We talked about fatty liver disease already. Okay, I think we got all the other ones. Um, I just missed those. 
Yeah, we talked about fatty liver disease. Now I want to talk about another hormone real quick that you can use to your benefit. I, my spelling ability has been lost today. Usually I spell pretty well. Um, all right, so adiponectin. This is another hormone. And um, adiponectin improves insulin sensitivity and releases fat stores. So is this a hormone we want to maximize? Mm -hmm. For sure. So it um, lowers fat storage and improves insulin sensitivity, or it improves, improves insulin receptors. So adiponectin is made by your good fat. So you remember the visceral fat, the fat that we don't want in our midsection makes inflammatory cytokines. But we have other kinds of fat in our body that we do need, and that fat makes adiponectin. So we all need fat storage, all of us. Um, nobody wants to be super, super, super thin because you don't function well that way. Um, but adiponectin, the job of adiponectin is to release fat stores so that if there's a famine or a crisis, you can, you can mobilize the sugar that you had stored and use it. Otherwise, it just stays as fat, right? So if we want to lose fat stores, then we want to use adiponectin to do that. Well, the best way to raise adiponectin is, you want to guess? To move. Exercise. <laughs> yep. I think I'm catching that. Next week, we're going to talk about exercise. We're going to talk about when, how, what type. We're going to talk all about exercise. We're also going to talk about how to hack your own body to regulate ghrelin and leptin. So that's all next week. So that's why I don't have very many cards left for, the, for tonight because the endocrine system is a big topic. Uh, but we're going to talk about that next week. So moving, exercising increases adiponectin. Uh, you can also increase adiponectin with MUFA consumption. So MUFAs are monounsaturated fatty acids as opposed to the polyunsaturated fatty acids. These are healthy fats. A MUFA would be avocado. The one word I can never spell. Um, nuts like macadamias. One of my favorites. Fish. Grass-fed beef. These all have lots of mucus. You can also increase adiponectin with turmeric. And turmeric can also help reduce your inflammation some. Not a ton, but some. You can increase adiponectin with coffee consumption. Now you'd want to regulate your coffee consumption because too much caffeine means too much adrenaline and cortisol. And remember, too much adrenaline and cortisol means blood sugar dysregulation and fat storage. But if you have, um, you know, two cups of coffee a day, one to two cups of coffee a day, um, and maybe you add some MCT oil to it. Remember MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides, improve your metabolism. Um, it also has monounsaturated fatty acids in there. So we're increasing adiponectin, we're improving insulin resistance, and we're having fun while we're doing it. <laughs> I like coffee. I don't drink coffee anymore. I just got out of habit, but it's good. And then we talked about exercise, talked about chromium. We talked about sleep and stress. Awesome. Any questions or comments? Mm -hmm.
for today? Um, what happens to your hormones, like say in your body, do they just, um, you know, do they just wear out? You know, you know, you have them and they're good, then now they're low. Which hormones specifically? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's just a matter of um, if you were one time producing enough or I don't know, do you just, you know, excrete them out? Where do they go? The Oh, the hormone, where do they, where do they go when they are finished with their job? Yes. So hormones go to your liver and your liver processes them. It adds ingredients to them and then they go to the small intestine and they leave with your stool i see so you you constantly so you have fresh ones yes you have to make hormones losing the ones you have. that's right that's right how long kind of does that take a daily you, well i guess you're always i mean you make hormones forever of oh, course wow. we all go through menopause and andropause where we start to make less sex hormones but when your sex hormone production goes down by the ovaries and the testes, your adrenal glands pick it up. So your adrenal glands make testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. So as long as you're not under severe amounts of stress, most people don't even realize when they've gone through menopause and andropause. So if you look at countries like um, Japan, like the islands of Japan, where people eat lots of fish, they're very healthy, they're not very stressed out, Okinawa. Um, they don't even have a phrase for hot flashes. They don't have hot flashes. They don't experience menopause or andropause that way because as their ovaries fail, their adrenals pick it up and they notice no difference whatsoever. Um, so you make hormones for the rest of your life. Um, how well your hormone receptors work changes. So remember the insulin receptor starts to fall apart. So hormone receptors require lots of minerals, for your insulin levels to be healthy, for, for you to be well-nourished. That becomes harder the older you get, because remember your stomach acid levels fall 10% for every decade of life. So by the time you get to 70, it starts to get real hard to get enough nutrients in to keep the body repairing itself on a regular basis. And that's when we start to kind of fade out, right? Because we all have an expiration date. <laughs> but you continue to make hormones every day of your life for the rest of your life. Is the bivalve not considered synthetic? No, that's bioidentical. <laughs> synthetic is the stuff they get from horse urine. Ooh. Yeah, it's not good. Mm -hmm. Called con conjugated equine estrogen. So what is bioidentical? Bioidentical means that it looks exactly like the hormone that you make in your body, which means it will sit on all the same receptors that your hormones would sit on. That's bioidentical compared to horse urine estrogen, which can't sit on all human receptors because it's not human at all. It caused abnormal side effects that they weren't anticipating because it was sitting on receptors abnormally. Or the synthetic hormones that are in birth control, all they can do is stop ovulation. They can't cross the blood brain barrier. They can't regulate sleep cycles. They can't, all these other things that you need your hormones to do, birth control pills can't do it. So if you spend too long on birth control pills, you get osteoporosis, breast cancer, like there's consequences from using synthetic um, hormones over time. Bioidenticals, you're just using something your body has always made, produced, and used. Um, so the side effects are virtually none, as long as you do it right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health Podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. 
To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com.